0: This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Hired. If you're a developer, designer, or product manager who's looking for a new opportunity, head over to Hired's website and create a profile to start receiving offers from companies who need what you do. If you accept a job through Hired, you'll receive a $2,000 signing bonus. And if you sign up through Hired.com slash Radio, they'll double that signing bonus to $4,000. So thanks again to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry, about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, as always, and today I'm here with Chris Hunt. How's it going, Chris?
1: It's going pretty awesome. Thank you so much for having me on
0: your show. Awesome, man. Uh, so for anyone who doesn't know you, do you mind just kind of giving a quick introduction about who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, no problem. Um, I think I'm probably most well known in uh, Ruby community, at least online. Um in person nobody knows me in the Ruby community, really, um, unfortunately. But um I think that has a lot to do with um not really Ruby actually. I, I've I've spoken at conferences about some programming stuff like Vim and T-Bucks, but mostly um I talk about things that have nothing to do with programming, like other, other addictions I have. And Ruby conferences are really happy to have those talks at their conferences. So things like the Rubik's Cube, you know, I've done a talk on solving the Rubik's Cube in less than 20 seconds. Um, that's at Gogoruko in San Francisco. I did another talk on solving the Rubik's Cube blindfolded. Um, and That was at RubyConf Argentina. And related to that, a bunch of memorization techniques and how to memorize all kinds of crazy things quickly and never forget them. And I've done, I've done a few talks on that. Um, I also, for maybe like a year and a half, had a podcast. I guess it's still there. I, I could use the present tense, but I haven't done an episode in seven months, so I don't know if you can. I don't know if it's dead or if it's like on, on hiatus. But it's called Healthy Hacker, and it's on healthyhacker.com. And similar to the conference talks, that's me just talking about. I do talk about programming, but also talking about just a bunch of other random things that interest me, and having really cool guests on um, that know a lot about those those topics. So I may do other episodes, but right now I'm currently addicted to motorcycling, so I'm I'm rarely home and and, and have time to, to work on that. Um, but it's a lot, it's a lot of fun.
0: Awesome, man. Yeah, I've watched uh, most of the conference talks that you've given and you definitely, uh, you have an interesting style. It's super entertaining, which I think is, uh, something that maybe people don't try hard enough to do in conference talks sometimes. What do you, what's the craziest thing that you've memorized that you still remember?
1: Oh, uh, mostly just Rubik's cube. Positions um, that I mean that it, it depends on how you define crazy, but that I mean that's definitely the most useless thing. I think I have, I think I have hundreds of Rubik's cubes memorized um, that I've been unable to forget. But um, other than that, I mean mostly mostly most of the things that I memorize are things that are useful to me, like names. Um, that's that's by far the thing I memorize the most and have the most uh, tricks for. Grocery lists. Um, I recycle those so much that I don't have older grocery lists remembered, but that's something I do on a regular basis. Um, pretty much any anything you usually write down um, on a daily basis, I try to memorize that. Um, and I reuse... I mean, we can go into how these memory techniques work, but a lot of them are based on physical spaces, like your home or places you go to. And I reuse those spaces so much that a lot of times old stuff just gets overridden with... With new stuff, so I have like the current grocery list memorized and like the last cube I solved memorized and like uh, you know all those other things. So, but they tend to just get erased over time. Cool, man. And you
0: work at GitHub, right? Yeah, that's correct. Awesome. And you work from home. Yep, I work from home. Cool, man. So uh, maybe uh, you know you mentioned the conference speaking thing. Maybe that'd be something that'd be interesting to get into uh, first. What do you think are kind of some of the biggest? things that people aren't thinking about when they're preparing a conference presentation or giving a conference presentation?
1: I think the biggest thing that, that people sometimes don't think about is the fact that you're standing in a room with other people. So, they're, so exploit that. Um, you know, you mentioned that my talks are entertaining and a lot of that just has to do with I move around a lot and try to use like sounds and visuals and things that you can't do in a blog post because you know, I, th- I feel like if you're going to be, especially uh, at a technical conference where everybody has a laptop sitting in front of them and they have a thousand other things that they can do while you're talking, the more entertaining you are and the more you make use of actually being in a room with other people, the better your talk's going to be. And it actually doesn't have a lot to do with what you're saying. So, if for the Ruby's Cube, for example, the talk I did on how to solve the Ruby's Cube blindfolded or how to solve the Ruby's Cube in less than 20 seconds, I had no expectation that after that talk, people in the audience are actually going to be able to do that. But I know for I know for a fact, um, because people have told me and just because of people I've talked to, that they're really excited about learning how to do that when they left the talk. So as long as I'm up there and I'm showing, showing people how it's done and I'm getting them excited about the thing I want to talk about or the thing I want to promote or the thing I want to get other people interested in, then I know that they're going to be excited about that and, and learn it after the talk, not necessarily during the talk. So just trying to get people excited and... Moving around and being visual and making things super memorable and and uh, that's that's a big part of it for me. Not necessarily the content of the talk. Totally.
0: Yeah, I f- I find like when I'm trying to prepare a presentation, I always have this feeling of this pressure that I'm supposed to somehow have some like really important message that I'm like trying to give to people. Mm-hmm. And uh, in trying to like analyze like the talks that I really like and the talks that I've really enjoyed watching, I find more and more that you know that actually isn't as uh, important as maybe it feels when you're someone who's trying to prepare a presentation yourself
1: yeah i mean it really isn't if i think about if i think about things that i would like to sit and watch for 45 minutes or half an hour or however long you know talks are it it, it rarely involves a person standing on one spot and clicking through slides it doesn't even matter if it's something i'm super passionate about it's just it's so boring to watch that so um the more exciting you can be in, like, almost random, the better it's going to be, and the more memorable. I mean, again, this comes back to memory techniques, but if I go up on the stage and I do, like, and I just do a handstand, like, or something like that, everybody's going to remember that, and they're going to remember exactly where they were when I did that handstand, they're going to remember why I did the handstand, if I talked about it, it's just, it's going to be extremely memorable, and they're going to come away from the conference remembering my talk, and then remembering to follow up and learn about whatever it is, you know, we talked about, so trying not to be just this statue.
0: Totally. Uh, Like, I don't think I will ever forget, you know, watching the uh, Rubik's Cube blindfolded video. Like, you're the dude with the GoPro on his head whose slides were pieces of paper that he was writing his slides on as he was doing the presentation and throwing them over his shoulder, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome, man. Cool. So um, working from home, what are some of the challenges that you've had working from home? Like, are you like a totally sold-on working remote, like having that flexibility kind of person? yeah I mean, for me
1: it's it's amazing, but um, my wife, for example, would absolutely hate it. Um, she really, really likes you know talking with people at work and hanging out with them and having that that time with other people. For me, I like being alone, so it works out really well. Um, there are definitely different ways to work remotely, but the way I work remotely is I'm mostly home all day all by myself, ex- uh, with my dog and my cat. Um, And the only interaction I have with other people is online through text or video chat and that kind of thing. And it's very on demand. There's no, nobody's just going to like pop up and start talking with me on video. I know exactly who I'm talking to and when I'm talking to them. And I really like that. I like the flexibility of that, like knowing, well, up to lunch, you know, I'm not interacting with anybody. So I could go anywhere I want and do whatever I want, work from wherever I want, and then come back for this specific time and, and talk to this person. So it's that, for me, it's that, that flexibility to be able to do other things besides work whenever I want it is the reason I like it the most. Um, but you do lose actually interacting with other humans if you like to do that.
0: Yeah, for sure. How much like uh, real-time communication do you do uh, each day? Well, with GitHub, this has
1: definitely changed from team to team, um, and it still changes from team to team. But um, for the most part, with the team I'm on now, I work really closely with three other people, and we have... A pretty much a traditional stand-up um, two days a week. We have it on Monday morning and Wednesday morning, and that's usually really quick. It's 10 minutes or so, um, where we talk about the things we worked on, the things we're working on next, and any kind of blockers we have um, as far as getting things done. And then we have uh, iteration planning as well every Thursday, which is usually a little bit longer, maybe 30 minutes to an hour where we, where we go through, we use Pivotal Tracker and we go through and organize all the stuff we want to work on. I work on our billing team. We call ourselves Gitcoin. So all the stuff we work on is related to our billing code and or, or things related to just getting money from other people, basically. So we go through once a week and prioritize all that work and then, and then start working on it. So probably total time per week of, synchronous interaction video chat with people is maybe two hours tops um, unless there's something special happening
0: are the people on your team like how far spread apart are you guys like if you're doing like morning stand-ups like is everyone in pretty similar time zones or do you got people like east coast and west coast or
1: yeah for the people on my team we're kind of lucky in that three of us are in the same time zone Two of them live in San Francisco. They both go to the GitHub office, actually, in San Francisco. I'm in Portland, Oregon, so same time zone. Um, And then we have one person on our team who's usually near Taiwan in that time zone, which is basically opposite. So uh, when we are having our stand-ups in the morning, which is a lot of the reason why we have them at the time we have them, she's usually getting ready to go to bed. So it's the end of the day. It's like 11 or midnight or something like that. She stays up pretty late, so it works for her. We decided that was a good time. Uh, but we've tried moving our meetings all over the place just to find a good time, and we've kind of settled on around 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. Pacific time. Works well for everybody.
0: Do you guys do much pair programming? Or are you guys usually working individually on stuff? It Again, it depends on what we're working on. Um, GitHub, as a company, doesn't have any
1: requirements for pair programming. Obviously, you want to have some kind of code review in there. We usually do that with pull requests. But... Um, I'd say maybe a third of the things we work on we do pair programming on, and we use um, things like Screen Hero, which is a really uh, – it's the best tool we found for streaming video and your screen at the same time and um, chatting and stuff like that. So it, it works it works well, we're, and we're usually pairing – especially if we're working with a different team, we'll try to pair with them on the billing stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense. I mean I started working from home – uh last December it's the first time I've had a remote job and uh you know there's a lot of benefits to it that I didn't even think about uh up front but I used to think that I really liked being by myself (laughs) and now I'm starting to realize like I kind of actually do like being around people I like to be able to opt into it but uh I definitely miss uh being able to like sit next to people and work on things and kind of like you know the water cooler chat and that sort of thing uh, a little bit but I know everyone's different right so
1: yeah, it's yeah. A, it's it's everyone's different, and it's a balance too. Some we actually have GitHub has a co-working space. We've we've ran a co-working space in Portland, Oregon, and we have this in other places too. So there are other people that work for GitHub in Portland, Oregon. We don't work together, but we have a co-working space that we can go to and just hang out with each other. Yeah, I think that's um, so a cool we, idea. Yeah, we can get some face to face time. Um, also, just going to a coffee shop things like that I tend to actually never do those things but because like, like I said I'm weird and I like being alone but for a lot of people that want the like on-demand interacting with people that's a great way to do it just go to go to a co-working space or coffee yeah, shop yeah I don't
0: something. think I would want to like hang out with strangers all day or anything yeah but the idea of like having people that like you have a lot in common with that kind of know what's going on with the same sort of stuff you're working on that you can bounce ideas off of is pretty cool but uh yeah the, uh, the way that you know you can just make it a totally opt-in thing is I think one of the most powerful the parts about being on a distributed team and being remote where you have the choice to do that hopefully if there's other people that are interested in uh, you know if someone's always at that co-working space right in Portland it's cool that you can just drop in there and have someone to hang out with if if you feel the need that day or whatever so that's definitely Yeah there's cool. also
1: the uh, Portland Ruby Brigade brigade here which is a the the it's a PDXR it's called PDXRB it's the Portland group meetup group a lot of developers there too and there's a monthly meeting and there's a monthly lunch um, and people on the mailing list tend to organize like different get-togethers that way too so they're not necessarily strangers they're not people you work with all the time but you can see the same people and make set up like places to work that way too
0: awesome uh so you know you talked a little bit about how when you guys aren't pair programming you go through like a pull request based code review process right um i read a pretty old article pretty recently about how you guys do pull requests at github or at least how you did pull requests at github then which is a little bit different to how you might see pull requests bouncing around in like the open source world do you mind kind of talking about how you guys use pull requests at github that might be different than how people are used to using them
1: yeah um when you're so uh, a lot of it has to do with because we work mostly distributed um so we pull requests are our main way of communicating. It's, it's not like we talk about something in person and then we put together a pull request and then present it and then get that merged in. It's like the pull request might be the first thing that you see of this feature or bug fix. So it, it's used more as a conversation than like a presentation. So for pull requests at GitHub and this is different than any of the like open source projects I've worked on. You might open a pull request before you've even written any code, almost as like an issue. You create you just create a new branch off master, push it up and then open a pull request with a description of what you're about to do. And the nice thing about that is people can start giving you feedback immediately like saying, "Well, actually, this is a horrible idea. We've we've tried this in the past. Or like, oh great, this is. Let me pair pair with you on this. I'm super interested in this. Um, and you try to mention teams or people that you think are going to be interested in what you're working on, so that you can have eyes on that. Um, and then as you're working, you're just constantly pushing up the code and bringing in people as necessary and um, getting their approval or getting their feedback, things like that. Um, another difference between uh, GitHub and other places I've worked is you'll find most people here. Don't squash or rebase or change any of the history. All the garbage is right there in the pull request. You see, you know, where it started, where it ended up. You see mistakes, um, stuff like that. And then when it's finally ready, it gets merged in to master with a merge commit. There's everything is there. At first, it, it I hated it because um, I love having a very clean history and hiding all that stuff. But you know, it it just doesn't it doesn't really matter. Um depending on how you work, it doesn't matter. Git GitHub likes to use GitHub as the source of truth and not the GitHub history. So, it's not necessarily important that that all the commit messages are extremely tidy and very descriptive because you can at any time pull up the pull request for this commit and see the whole conversation and get way more context than you would have got from that one commit. So, yeah, it's it's very different than other places I've worked. It's just kind of like a living thing, and then it gets merged in, rather than creating this beautiful jewel of a code, you know, this beautiful new feature, and then and then requesting that to be merged in. It's more of a, a progress conversation thing.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Because I think one of the biggest challenges uh, that I've faced with a, you know, the pull request process that maybe is more common, where someone codes up a bunch of stuff, and when they're ready to have it pulled in they open a pull request if someone has written like 1600 lines of code or something it's like it's really hard to change the direction you know if they like made some fundamental design decision that maybe you don't agree with early and then built a bunch of stuff on top of that it's really hard to like be like oh we got to throw this all away and do this a different way because there's already so much momentum going in whatever direction that someone wanted to go in right and i think when you're working on a distributed team and you know, you don't have as much opportunity for someone to just kind of look over your shoulder and give you feedback on something that you're working on. Uh, I think this idea of opening pull requests early and like specifically tagging people and asking for feedback is probably a really good way to, uh, to try and make up for some of those compromises that you end up having to make by, you know, having people kind of work all over the place at different times and stuff like that, for sure. Yeah, it can
1: definitely save you a lot of emotional stress when you've spent like three days working on this piece of code and nobody else agrees that it that this was a good approach i mean at least you could get, get that short circuit a little bit earlier
0: yeah for sure do you find at github you guys do much reviewing of stuff on other teams or does each team kind of handle code review internally and you know that stuff doesn't really cross around too much
1: yeah we tend to just review each other's um, within a team uh, review like for me every time i open up a pull request i mention my team um, and then I generally wait for somebody to give a thumbs up on that before I before I merge it in. We do merge our own pull requests. Um, and it's rare that I'll rope in another team unless I'm doing something where I need something from that other team, like um, a database migration. I might want to roll in. We have folks that work with our database. I might say, hey, is, does this migration look sane to you? I think it's okay, but I could use a, a double set of eyes on here. So things like that I might wrap somebody rope somebody else in or if somebody's working in the billing section of GitHub or working on something billing related and they want some feedback on that they might ask the billing team to take a look at their pull request too
0: Cool How do you guys like manage making sure that the people who work remote and the people that work together in the office you know feel like they're on the same team and that there's not like missing layers of communication or anything like that
1: Yeah it's I mean there's not like a one way every, every like i said every team functions a little bit differently um, our our team the billing team i'm i think we are probably the first team not the only team anymore but the first team to have more of a traditional stand up and iteration planning which really helps make sure we're all on the same page and know and know what everybody's working on um but but, but prior to working on that team it was mostly just over communicating everything. I mean, every pull request you open mentioning your team mentioning people you think might be interested, um, every time you're really doing anything at all telling people about it. So if you could do that in a pull request, that's good. If you find a bug, just create an issue instead of just telling somebody about it. If you're going to be out, you know, for half the day or something, just let people know in chat or something like that. So people have an expectation that you're not going to be there. Just things like that just over communicating and always trying to Make sure that you're telling people what's happening because they can't see you um, and you can't see them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Do you guys, you just mentioned that um, you're, you think you guys are one of the only teams that does like the iteration sort of stuff that you guys are doing in the the standups. Do all the teams kind of operate as totally like self-directed entities that kind of figure out what process works for them?
1: Well, see, this has changed a lot since I've joined GitHub. GitHub is a very different company now than when I first joined. And I haven't been there that long. I've been at GitHub um, two and a half years. And when I first joined, it was very much like what you described. There were some teams, but there were also a lot of just individuals working on whatever they were most interested in or whatever whatever they thought was most important. Now, um and and I should say that like the way teams formed then at the time was somebody would get really excited about something and then they'd rally all their coworkers and build a team basically and then work on this thing and then that team would dissipate and go they'd all start working on their own thing again, so it was kind of cool and organic how it worked but it it didn't tend to scale well when you have I mean we've got like three hundred people now um, and uh, it just doesn't it just doesn't work to have everybody working on their own thing so we tend to have t- more long running teams now. And the way those teams are working are kind of gravitating towards the more traditional approach of actually telling people what you're going to work on, like having an iteration planning and then talking about the stuff, you you know, just like everybody else is working. It tends to move towards that. So we kind of started that way on the billing team. But I'd say most teams are heading in that direction. They might be using different tools to do it, but it's still the traditional stand up and iteration planning um, kind of process, I think, is what everybody's gravitating towards now.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah, I guess that's kind of interesting. So you guys use Pivotal Tracker on your team, but you just mm-hmm. kind of decided to use Pivotal Tracker that other teams might not use it. They might use other tools. Yeah, and that, that had
1: that had to do, one, I, ha- I had a lot of experience with Pivotal Tracker. The two other people on my team were actually hired into GitHub. They were consultants, and they used Pivotal Tracker on all the projects they worked with with their clients, so they were familiar with it. So it was just a tool we were familiar with. Um, but yeah, there wasn't really, you know, it's a free tool. There wasn't really any process we had to go through. We just signed up and started using it.
0: Because it worked well for us. Do you guys make use of like all the functionality that Pivotal Tracker provides you? The, the one thing that I found kind of overwhelming when I've tried to use it is just this big emphasis on like all these burn down charts that you can generate and <laughs> your point estimates and all that stuff. Do you guys worry about that too much, or are you mostly just using it as like a backlog of tasks
1: or stories? or? You know, we, we mostly just use it to prioritize work and tell people what we're working on, um, which you know, may or may not be something that gets worked into GitHub itself because a lot of people have this problem. Uh, but this is a, uh, you know, it's it. before using this tool, it was really difficult to tell which issue we wanted to work on next um, or which issue was the most important or what issue I'm working on. I mean, it's just, it's impossible. So the nice thing about Pivotal Tracker is you're able to just move stories around, prioritize them, assign them to people, and then that stuff will sync back to GitHub if you wanted to and add labels and and things like that. So you could still use GitHub issues, um, but then you use Pivotal Tracker to prioritize those issues, basically.
0: Right on. So do you guys have a sync that goes like from GitHub into Pivotal Tracker? Like, Where do you put the stuff in the first place?
1: Uh, it's a two-way sync. Most of the time, we'll create an We'll create an issue on a repository and we'll add a specific label to it. And when that label gets added, that'll, add a, that'll create a story in the backlog for Pivotal Tracker that will then prioritize in the next iteration planning.
0: Okay, cool. That makes sense. Uh, cool. So another topic that I think would be interesting to get into, kind of totally shifting gears, is uh, sure. this idea of the codecation that you and uh, Ben Ornstein kind of coined. Mm-hmm. Do you mind mm-hmm. kind of giving the overview of what that's all about and what you guys did there?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, so obviously the word codecation is made up, but it's like, you know, it's a combination of code and vacation, um, which some people have had actually really strongly disagree with when that word was made up. But but, anyways, the whole point of it is, is you know, on a day-to-day basis, like me, for example, I work on the billing team. I work on code on github.com. I work on a specific Rails app. I'm constantly solving billing problems, you know. May or may not be challenging on some days it's just like it's you're kind of you you can easily get in a rut where I could see myself working at a company for like two or three years and working on the same stuff every day right so this this idea of a codecation was um and i think it I think it was ben's idea i 'm not hundred percent sure who to give the credit to, but um he had this book that he really wanted to read s i c p which is it doesn't matter because we never ended up reading the book. But the point is, he but the point is he wanted to he wanted to really spend some time learning about functional programming and and experiment with that because he never gets to do it on a day to day basis. He just wanted to try to you know get better at programming by doing this. So uh, he mentioned that on Twitter. I said, oh my gosh, I want to do that too. We ended up um, uh, renting a uh, cabana or house. I'm not really sure what to call it in uh, Costa Rica, and we spent a week together. Um, not knowing each other at all before this, um, spent a week together just playing with functional programming and you know experimenting and learning these things. We ended up going with Closure Script, um, and we built you know the game of life, which is pretty traditional. We also built a, a maze of generator and solver, which is like by far the the coolest thing we did in Closure It's so cool to watch, um, and it was great. Like we 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 used all these tools we've never used before. You know we built. Uh, we use tons of JavaScript. we use tons of, of so closure script is closure that compiles to JavaScript if people aren't familiar with it. so you get to use closure and build web programs. Um, it was so fun um, and we learned a lot from that. It was a nice break from like the day to day working on one specific rails app thing so that is a codecation it's basically just um, we decided to pick a stranger, but it's basically going with somebody if I guess you can go by yourself, but it 's definitely more fun to go with somebody. Taking somebody you may or may not know, going to some uh, remote location where you're disconnected from things that you usually interact with every day, and just, like, working on a new new project. So our second codecation, um, we went to uh, Boulder, Colorado, um, and we decided to build this thing called TrailMix, which is a, a daily journaling service. And the way this idea came about was... Um Ben was using a service that provided that did this already, and it just happened to close they shut down um, for financial reasons as he was on his way to our codecation. So we decided to build a replacement for this. And it's an application that sends you an email every day and says, Hey, how was your day? And then you reply and tell it how your day was. And every day it'll do this at the same time. And eventually you have this big catalog of these journal entries and every email that comes to you reminds you of a previous entry. So you're like, Oh, I remember that like a week ago, or, you know, I remember this from a year ago. It's, it's just, it's just, it kind of reinforces the, the journaling habit. Um, yeah, and then we we so then we threw it up. Um, we're charging people for it, and it's still alive. And uh, you know, it's it's paying for all its costs and running. And you know, we made we made it open source, and we work on it as necessary. And yeah, it's just a lot of fun. So we don't have a, our next codecation planned yet, but we are talking about like a good time to do that and and what we want
0: to work on. Awesome. So. The first one where you went to Costa Rica, how did you kind of balance, you know, wanting to make the most of being in such like a cool exotic place that probably you don't get to go to many times in your life with trying to like, you know, accomplish what you set out on the codecation to do in the first place?
1: Yeah. Well, the nice thing is we had, we didn't have any goals. So there wasn't like a a, a pressure of, of finishing a thing on a specific time. So we didn't have that. Um, but I think, I think mostly for us, it was like the meal times um, and uh, the morning times. Those were usually times we weren't necessarily writing code. So we like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We always went to different spots. So that usually involved walking to a new place, checking out, you know, talking to different people. Like the place we stayed in Costa Rica was pretty touristy. So we didn't have to walk very far to find restaurants. Um, but that was, that's mainly what it came down to is just um, finding a place to eat. So we ended up doing a lot of exploration that way getting coffee you know we ended up leaving maybe five or six times to to get coffee and yeah I mean uh, I, I can't think of any specific like touristy thing we talked about maybe getting jet skis but that never happened you know uh, we were way too into the into the closure script yeah it's it's that's kind of the downside of picking a, a nice place but I think I think remote's the key so you're not like bombarded with your day to day kind of thing so you, Do you think detach. Boulder
0: was a better choice for for a codecation spot than costa rica
1: probably i think it was probably probably a more financially responsible decision if nothing else
0: (laughs) i've been thinking about trying to do one myself because it sounds like a really good opportunity to like just be able to just put your head down and like finally like build something that you think is cool from start to finish with this goal of kind of getting it done by the end end of the day right and having someone else to work on it with is totally fun it's kind of uh we're kind of lucky i think to be in careers where you can go on vacation to do what you do at work and somehow that's supposed to be something that you're excited about like yeah if my fiance was to uh, go on vacation to like do HR management I don't think uh, (laughs) she would have a very good time so
1: no that wouldn't be very much fun I I think I mean yeah it's 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 kind of what we it's kind of like doing what we do every day but it's not it's totally different I mean it's like, um, uh, it's like if you're, I don't know, what's a what's a good way to, just, it's like if what you do all day is build these artisanal tables, right, and then you take a break and learn how to build a car, it's like completely different. I mean, it's, you're using completely different tools. It's, it's, you're still building, but it's like, it's a whole different experience. And then you come away from it and be like, wow, that was crazy. I can't believe I did that. I'm going to like tell everybody about it on Twitter or whatever. Um, it's, it's, so it's kind of the same thing, but it is, it's a big break and, um, it just happens to improve, you know, your, your building skills, um, when you get back home again, but it's, it's more of a, I think a coincidence
0: than anything else. I don't know. Have you heard from uh, anyone else who was inspired to take a Codecation after reading about William Ben did? You know, I've heard people say they're going to do one, but I've never, I've
1: never seen like a Codecation report of anyone saying, okay, we did it. Here's where we went. This is what we did. So, so if anyone it, has so one no one's of those. followed
0: through or at least hasn't made it public
1: yet. as far as far as I know. Interesting. Yeah, as far as I know. And I think that I think that was a part of it, too, is like sharing what you built or what you learned. Um, and I and I don't think I don't think.
0: Uh, yeah, I haven't seen that anywhere. So do so you will be the first? You'll be the first. And that gives me a little bit more motivation to put it together. So, you know what? The thing that makes it hard for me is um, the people that like I would love to do it with are people that are local to me. Mm-hmm. so it's like so hard for us to justify getting on a plane and going somewhere like i could i would totally do it but i don't know if the people that i would want to do it with would be able to like justify it like why can't we just like take a four-day weekend and hang out in your basement like it's the same thing <laughs> right. you know what i mean where do you live i live in uh southwestern ontario like an hour outside of toronto
1: okay so you guys can literally just get in a car and drive like two hours north or something and be pretty remote right
0: totally yeah there's definitely like cool spots you could go you could go rent a cottage for uh, a week or something and that would actually be totally fun the only problem would be uh, reliable internet access it's pretty crappy up there but i'm sure you could pick the right spot and it would be okay how did you guys manage that in costa rica like my idea of costa rica is not like high speed internet
1: yeah there wasn't internet anywhere except for the place where it's dang so I mean it wasn't expensive, but it was as far as Costa Rica goes, it was expensive and they had yeah, they had Wi Fi, you know, showers, everything everything you'd need, but it wasn't the fastest internet, but yeah, it was it was got plenty. the job done. Yeah, yeah, it was plenty. Plenty of that all, all we needed. <laughs> right on.
0: Yeah. So what else is going on, man? What are you what are you excited about these days?
1: Well, I mentioned it earlier, but you know, this is probably not interesting to anybody, but motorcycling. Um op- it it's called adventure motorcycling, but it's it's uh um, Mostly, mostly off-road motorcycling, riding in rem- on remote roads and, you know, having lots of fun where, there are no, where there's no people around you. And it's just, it's great. I mean, I just, uh, just Sunday, um, when we were trying to set this interview up, actually, I, it took me a while to respond to your email because I didn't have email because I was on my motorcycle. I was taking this really cool trip. Um, GitHub, because we're remote, we try to get together at least once a year to see everybody. So we have face-to-face time, get to meet people that just joined this year or whatever. um, And we call it our summit. Um, And this year that summit was in San Diego. And it was just a few weeks ago. So in order to get to the summit instead of flying, I decided, oh man, I'm going to ride a motorcycle. And I'm going to take a really long time to get there. So I left two weeks before summit. um, And I went through uh, 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 Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Arizona, Nevada, and then ended up in San Diego for our summit. And then after our summit, I met a guy in San Diego who was also interested in motorcycling. And we went into Baja, California. We went about 800 miles down into Baja, California off-road, camped a couple nights, and then came back up again. And then I went home another two weeks through the mountains of California because it's July and there's no snow on them right now. So there's just a ton of good stuff. But Half of those miles, those 6,000 miles, were off-road. So you don't see anybody, and everything is just insanely beautiful and serene, and you feel like this super hardcore adventure. It's so much fun, and you're camping, and oh, man, it's, it's super addictive. And that's, Did you
0: do that whole trip down by yourself?
1: I did, yeah. The, the, the length, the dive I did down into Baja with uh, Dave from um, San Diego, that was about uh, three to four days. I think it was four days. That was the only time I was riding with another person. Um, but, you know, there's uh, some things you can use. There's like Spot. Have you heard of Spot? No. It's a, So because you're far away from um, cities and stuff, you usually don't have cell connectivity, obviously. Um, but there's this thing called Spot, which is a GPS tracker tracker. Um, GPS uses satellites, so you don't need cell service. And it'll just send out little tracking dots so people at home can see where you're at. Make and sure you have you're still few... moving. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you have a few buttons you can press, too. You can press a button that says, like, I'm okay. And it'll send whoever you've set up uh, text messages that, that tells them you're okay in your location. You have another button that says, we, it's a custom message. You can send whatever you want. But when I press it, it says, it says I need a tow truck. My vehicle's not working anymore, you know. I'm not injured, don't worry, but there's no, I can't move. I need help. So hopefully, when my wife gets a message like that, I hope I never need to press that button. She can send a tow truck to that specific location. And then there's also a button that says, I'm dying. So that if you press that button, that's the button you have an, an insurance policy for. If you press that button, that means a helicopter is going to fly in, you know, a jeep's going to come in, whoever however they're going to get to you. The local police department is going to be contacted and they're going to take whatever means they can to get out to you as fast as possible because, you know, your leg has just been removed or something. Like <laughs> yeah, that's like the only scenario I think I'd press that button, but it's it's like the I'm going to die button. I need I need quick help right now. I don't care how much it costs. So there's a little bit of security there, but you know, um, yeah, it, that that kind that's kind of what makes it fun is being by yourself and taking those those risks.
0: Yeah, man, that sounds really cool. Did you ever run into any mechanical issues that caused you to press that button number two? <laughs> no, the so the bike the bike
1: I'm using, in case anyone else is interested, um, there's traditionally what people have always used are BMWs. The BMW has a GS line and there's these giant bikes um, like there's a BMW 1200 GS. It weighs, I don't know how much it weighs, a lot. It's like 500 pounds. Like I'm not even exaggerating. It might be over, it might be 600 pounds. Um, And then there's the 800 GS, which is a little bit smaller. I don't, I don't use those. Um, I use Triumph, and Triumph makes a similar bike. It's called the Triumph Tiger, um, and I use their 800. So I have a Triumph Tiger 800, and it's just a gigantic dual-sport bike. Um, and the only mechanical problems I had on this trip was a flat tire in the front. I don't even know how it happened, but uh, it was the first time I've ever had a flat tire on a motorcycle. Um, I had all the, the tools, and, and I had an extra tube to fix it. So I did. It took me four hours. Um, but when I got done, I felt like I really achieved something. And at the time, this is like the worst part of my life ever, according to me. Um, but then <laughs> afterwards, I'm like, wow, I'm so glad that happened. I feel so awesome right now. Um, but that's the only problem I had. And, um, you know, thankfully I, with, with motorcycles today, you know, if you're not if you're not being super aggressive, there's not really that much that can go wrong with a, with a modern motorcycle um, that you can't get yourself can't get yourself out of
0: awesome man well maybe that's a good place to uh to cut it off is there uh what's the best way for people to kind of like keep up with what you're doing and uh follow you online um
1: uh well i'm most active on instagram i think um and i'm huntca h-u-n-t-c-a um i also have a twitter account i and i don't use that as much today i use it more just for talking to other people but you know never know i might post something on there so i'm chris hunt on twitter and i'm also chris hunt on github and if people want to see links to all this stuff i have a website too chrishunt.co and that has my talks on there as well if people want to learn how to solve the ruby's cube
0: awesome man well it's been a blast having you on thanks so much for giving me your time yeah thank you cool so uh if anyone's interested in checking out the show notes for this episode they'll be at a uh, fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash i think 23 but i'm gonna check that real quick right now yeah 23 uh so you'll be able to find links to you know chris's talks if you're interested in learning how to solve the rubik's cube with a blindfold on he's the man to learn how to do it from so uh thanks for listening to the show thanks again to uh hired for sponsoring the podcast as always if um you could rate and review the show on itunes i hear that's really helpful i go and read those once in a while and it's cool to see what people uh, have to say i should probably uh convince you guys to do it more often because i think it's really good for discoverability and stuff but honestly i mostly just do this podcast so that i can talk to cool people and learn things from them so i haven't worried about it too much in the past but uh thanks for listening to the podcast as always and uh, i'll catch you guys next time